Hello, I'm Sean Murray and this is The Conversation, where we take an alternative look at political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. In this show, we hope to pick, probe, investigate and uncover the stories that you want to hear. We go where mainstream won't go. This week, we talked to one of Ireland's finest comedians, a man that has recently taken Twitter by storm, now also an author. His recent book details the horrific consequences of addiction and the redemptive process of recovery. Never shying away from politics, he's been a strong advocate for Irish unification and Palestinian self-determination. Tag Hickey, welcome to the show. Thanks very Sean. Delighted to be here. Delighted to have you. So tell me, Tag, I've recently read your book and uh, I was bemused by some of it, <laughs> so the honesty in the writing in the book. And uh, actually it was, it was an amazing book and it's, and it's great to see that someone just put it out there like you did, particularly you're a comedian, you know, and you're, you're not very, very funny, but also very, very profound. I was, and, and, and I really enjoyed Jesus, it. Jesus, thanks a million, man. Thank you. And, and the stuff, I mean, your childhood growing up, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, like I'd say it was a happy childhood, you know, so, and this is the funny thing about drinking, because alcoholism is a mental illness, and that's kind of the premise of the book, I suppose. I feel like in Ireland, people think of drinking and drinkers and alcoholics as a kind of an aberration, you know, that they've done something wrong morally, but the, the fact is that they're sick and I was sick, but I wasn't always sick. And I suppose that's the point of the childhood. There was moments where I felt, you know, and when I say sick, I mean, you need something to treat the illness and the illness really is kind of, for me anyway, anxiety. Uncomfortableness, I think is, I might've called it, um, but I wouldn't have put the term anxiety on it, but that anxiety would have come and it would have gone. You know, it wasn't something that was there all the time. It would kind of spike and it would spike in bizarre settings. Like I remember being a kid and playing soccer with my buddies and just this kind of sense of gloom coming over myself and feeling uncomfortable in myself. Um, and like it was kind of working class 80s cork. Like I wasn't about to go home and, you know, call a family meeting about it. We didn't talk about those kind of things. And as I say, when, when I was struck with a bit of anxiety, I probably thought I was mad. There was a big fear, whether it was just me or it was my community, you didn't want to be mad. You know, mad people were taken away by men in white coats <laughs> and they were brought to hospital. Sometimes if your drinking got totally out of hand, you'd kind of wander in over the line into madness, like, and so-and-so, he's gone away to some place and he's kind of locked up. That's what you didn't want. And that would have been a fear of mine from a very early age, because this anxiety, I wouldn't have called it that at the time. The feeling comes up, you're kind of going, am I mad? But then it would go away again and I'd enjoy doing the things I did, like playing football and hanging out with my mates and stuff. And as I say, I was a happy kid. I was obsessed with my dad. I used to kind of follow my dad around. He was a good bit older. I was a real afterthought in the family. I was quite young. But uh, as I detail in the book, he was an ordinary man, but he was extraordinary to me. Like he just seemed like he had life all figured out. Um, whereas I felt like I was kind of caught up in myself. I was worried how I was coming across. Did people like me? Uh, how do I get people to like me? He just seemed to be breezing through life, not worrying about any of these things. You know, he just seemed to have it figured out. And uh, and again, even with the drinking, he enjoyed his few points. He'd be singing songs. Uh, he'd be getting the pub going. He'd come home and then he'd get up and he'd go to work and he'd look after his kids. That seemed to be the way to do it. So everyone in my world drank, my, you know, in the family and the community, everyone drank. The key was to drink, uh, but definitely look after your family and go to work. If you were getting up and going to work, it didn't matter what stage you got into bed in. 
And unfortunately, very early on in my childhood, uh, when I started drinking, I should say, when I was 16, 15, 16, I was unable to get up and perform. Yeah, so it was like a functional alcoholism and by that stage you just, you, you couldn't do it? Yeah, like, I mean, at the start, I suppose there's all sorts of stuff going on. I mean, I, I was also, as soon as I started drinking, and it, it's something I detail in the book, um, it, it's in our junior cert night down south. It's like a big ceremony that you're going to go drinking, like it's your first primary exams or whatever. And uh, so there was people drinking before that for me. So I was a little bit, I was quite nervy as a kid. Um, my older brothers were wilder. They were kind of like out fighting and hunting and stuff like that. I was more bookish, kind of like, you know, under a tree reading John Keats type of young fella. And, um, but then suddenly I just took a drink and I just transformed into the superhero. Like, and that's the, that's the best way I've, I've, I've been able to kind of crystallise what addiction is really like. So you've got a young person, there was stuff going on at home. Um, you know, there was, there was issues with my mother, which we may or may not get into. And uh, I felt, I suppose there was trauma there. I wouldn't have put that term in it at the time. But it was mostly just that uncomfortable feeling. I didn't know where it would come from. I just knew that I felt uncomfortable. And I knew when I picked up this can, after one or two of these cans, the, the feeling of, of uncomfortableness was gone. But more than that, I felt like I was a superhero. And uh, that's, I don't think the people around me were feeling that. Like they were having a good time. But I knew straight away, I mean, the best way I could kind of uh, distill it, I think, is they probably wanted to be drinking and having fun. And very early on, I needed it. I really just needed it very early on. Um, but having said all that, I was reasonably good at school. I was ambitious. I wanted to do well. I uh, wanted to get a good leaving. I wanted to go and do college and stuff like that. So. I knew when I started drinking that it was something that needed to be managed. So for a while, I was able to manage it pretty well. Like, you know, again, looking back on it, it's probably weird that you would be managing your drinking at 16 or 17 or 18 at all. But I knew if I started drinking, I probably wouldn't stop and I wouldn't turn up for the thing that I needed to do the next day. So if I had something important on, I just wouldn't go drinking. And you also noted in the book that your saviour was through acting and writing. You want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so... The, the uncomfortableness that I had, to go back to that again, that could, you could get rid of that loads of different ways, you know, and drinking was a great outlet for it. But another way was when I was younger playing sport, I played soccer reasonable level in Cork, I wasn't a bad soccer player, and that would often take it away. But getting involved in performing or acting a bit, normally the type of acting I try to do involved comedy and I suppose that was the origins of the comedy thing putting on voices making funny noises taking the piss out of people in my family and doing impressions of them all that kind of stuff uh, and when I was performing and mostly in school and with friends and stuff people would laugh and that was a, that was another addiction straight away like but it definitely got rid of that feeling of uncomfortableness and it gave me a sense of um, that this is kind of the thing that I'm supposed to be at and when I was doing the thing that I was supposed to be doing, I felt, and that I felt like I was enjoying it, again, just that feeling of like, there's something up with me, I feel uncomfortable and I can't put my finger on it, just started to dissipate. So what was the spark then that led to a career in comedy? I think one of the first moments that I thought to myself, I would like to do comedy was actually when I was a kid and my sister and myself were very close and she was a real, she had a real influential role on my taste and everything. It started off with music. Um, she would have been listening to Led Zeppelin and The Doors and Pink Floyd and she'd have all those old records and stuff. So 
when I was starting secondary school and other kids were listening to Oasis and Blur and stuff, I was listening to kind of 60s American rock and stuff. And I felt like I was kind of cool because of her. But it wasn't me. Like, I was just kind of following whatever she did. And she also had a really refined kind of sense of humour and kind of, you know, Rick Mayle and The Young Ones and all that type of kind of anarchic uh, British comedy, which I loved. So I used to try and make her laugh. And I thought if she laughed at something that I had said, that that was a good bar, you know, that I'd made my sister laugh because she was funny. Um, and then it, it became a kind of a thing of like, oh, how much can I get her to laugh? And like, oh, she didn't like this thing. And it's like my first audience, I suppose. I was also trying to make my mother laugh um, and whatnot. And then I remember going to, so by secondary school, I think, you know, the feeling of starting secondary school is, I was a fat kid as well, right? I hope I can say fat. I know it's probably not the, the nice thing to say these days, but I am saying it about myself. Um, and I got to school, you're fat. My hair was kind of weird. And you're just self-conscious, like you're kind of going, how am I going to fit in here? My brothers, as I say, were tougher men and they probably would have went straight into the kind of like, I'll kick your head in type of thing. And I knew I didn't really have that in me, but I knew I had a sharp tongue and I knew I could make people laugh. And I also knew I could make people a bit scared because if they mocked you and you mocked them back and you made other people laugh more, I was aware that that was a real strong currency. So um, I just fell into kind of making people laugh and no one really bullied me and I kind of went to the top of the kind of social structure in school because uh, I was able to look after myself with my tongue <laughs> as opposed to my fists, you know. So um, that was the first inkling that I was kind of, that I was good at it. But then you go on this whole journey of, you know, am I going to be so cocky as to demand that people sit in a room and listen to me because I'm so funny? Like that, for me, that's an inc incredibly, it's an audacious uh, expression of self-confidence and self-belief. Um, and I didn't really have the balls to do that for a long time. What I initially did, I did music and I love music as well. I mean, that was a huge, huge passion of mine. I was in a band and I would try and make some of the lyrics funny. And I was kind of playing the role of a comedian within a band. So I was hiding in a band as a comedian, I think. We were called Exit Pursued by a Bear. Um, what did you call it? Exit Pursued by a Bear. So it's a, it's a pretentious quote from, uh, from the Winter's Tale and the whole band was very pretentious and I was the, the I suppose the, the, the main reason for that but uh but that was my way of kind of doing rock comedy or rock kind of theatrics I suppose um and then later on when that folded I was kind of doing doing bits and pieces of acting and then an opportunity arose to start a comedy troupe so again it was not me on my own it's me with two other two other people so that was the kind of journey I suppose into comedy there's a there's a, a film, isn't there? It's a bit like The Office, because I knew you were a fan of The Office. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's about a rock group without Ken. And I know Ricky Gervais was actually influenced, isn't it? What was the name of that film? Mm. Oh my God, what's it called? Oh, lad. Lads. I, this is Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. Yeah, That's yeah, it. this is yeah. Spinal Tap. Yeah. I actually feel, this is a weird thing to say, but I feel like I have got a bit in common with Ricky Gervais. Like he was like, you know, a big influence of mine. He was in a band, uh, he studied philosophy in college. And he was like kind of, you know, doing his own thing and then kind of fell into this big, massive uh, comedy opportunity. So I always felt I'd get to a certain age, probably 40, and then these massive comedy opportunities would happen for me. Hasn't happened yet, John. <laughs> Not down south anyway. I'd probably get more work like in the Middle East. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> well, now, speaking about the Middle East and more closer to home, politics closer to home, a lot of your comedy revolves around politics. Uh, and I read somewhere that you were influenced, maybe slightly, in your politics by the Late Late Show one night. You want to talk about that? Yeah. 
I think it was possibly 1994, I think it was. So I was a kid. Um, at that stage, it would have been ten, probably 10, 10 or 11. And uh, just, I was watching it live, I suppose, like most of Ireland watched the Late Late Show at the time. And uh, forgive me, I don't have all the, all the members of the panel, but it was Jerry Adams was, was giving an interview and I knew it was a thing. We were watching it because Jerry Adams was going to be on. And I, it was a fairly apolitical house that I grew up in. You know, people probably were sympathetic to the, the Republican uh, struggle, but not in any demonstrative way, really. And certainly from the media that we consumed, we kind of were to believe that uh, Jerry Adams almost personified all the problems with the North, that almost like, you know, every aspect of the conflict was on his shoulders and that he bore personal responsibility for everything that had happened. I think it was the same night that uh, Gay Byrne refused to shake his hand and he basically sat down and I didn't know that much about him before then. And uh, I didn't know that much about the North either. And I think that's the key point that you know, when I watched that interview, I think Austin Curry was part of the panel. There was basically a lineup of people trying to take pops at him and traduce him in a variety of ways and to pin, as I say, the whole conflict on his shoulders. And I just witnessed somebody really calmly, uh, without any emotion whatsoever, um, refute every accusation that was coming to him, but more importantly, contextualized the conflict um, for the first time, I'd never heard that before. I, did, I hadn't heard anything about loyalist paramilitaries before. I, I just thought there was one, and I wasn't quite sure who they were fighting as a kid, but I just knew the IRA were fighting Britain. Um, and that the, the impression I got from the, the mainstream media down south was that, you know, Ireland had won its independence. Um, a few counties didn't make the, the grade, unfortunately and they were kicking up all this storm and violence and murder because they were prone to, to murderousness. Um, and we wish they would just stop it because they're really embarrassing us now on a kind of an international level. Now, I'm being a little bit playful when I say that, but that is roughly um, the sense of the North I had as a kid. So I wouldn't even say that I became a, like an Irish Republican watching that interview from Jerry Adams. I just became somebody that was really interested in the North. And that was, that was the, the main, uh, thing for me and because nobody had ever contextualized the conflict before and more importantly nobody had ever stated the important role that the south had played or not played as, as whichever way you'd look at it in creating the causes and conditions and nobody had ever kind of detailed that before for me up until that moment it was a kind of a separate thing it was uh, happening in a different place it was unconnected to us and as I say, we wish that they would just stop it. Um, so definitely my head blew off my shoulders. I was like, OK, there's more to this than the mainstream media in the South is portraying. There's much more to this story than RTE uh, and The Independent and The Irish Times are telling us. Because even, I mean, as a young kid, I was just interested in the news and uh, you know, I'd read bits and, bits, bits and pieces of the newspaper and stuff. But uh, so yeah, that there was another that there was another alternative version of this history out there was new to me. And did that galvanise you to explore things further, just politically? I mean, did you read up more on, on what was happening in the north? Or? Yeah, I mean, within a few years, I suppose I would have been a Sinn Fein uh, supporter, I suppose, in school, and that would have been unusual, I think, in the south in that period as well. I remember there was there was two lads in my <laughs> in my class in secondary school, and we were both kind of interested in Sinn Fein, and we we went to. Uh, Sinn Féin youth uh, meeting and one of the lads, uh, Ken is his name, he had, um, 
he had a, co a copy of On Fublucht and I was reading On Fublucht on my lunch break <laughs> and one of my teachers took me outside the door to ask me was everything all right at home um, <laughs> and I think you know nothing that I've come across since encapsulates the complete misunderstanding of everything in the north that was going on down south at the time and you know some people were doing it maliciously you know some people had agendas but most people were just eating up the propaganda and you see it today in the conflict that's going on right now in Gaza most people are just ordinary people going about their business it's the people who are actually perpetrating and putting the propaganda out there they have a responsibility but your average person will become influenced by the propaganda that they that they consume so I think most people down south just had this idea that there was just one perpetrator of violence in the north and and uh, that Jerry Adams is a representative for them and so he needed to be neutralized and censored you know and that's I suppose what was happening literally. You've mentioned Gaza there uh, and we'll get to that in a second uh, I just want to probe you more about your your involvement with Irish reunification uh, and when I say involvement you've been a strong advocate for reunification why, why is it important to you? I think it's important to me because it connects directly to what I was saying earlier of growing up in a state that felt like it was completely disconnected from this other state and um, as soon as I started reading I realized that that's not the case at all and that there's a community of people in the north don't feel disconnected. They feel the opposite. They feel like, you know, not that they, they, they feel Irish, they are Irish, and they think of themselves as part of the island of Ireland, and it would be their wish that that would be a 32-county republic. Um, I think if, as, as you move towards breaking that sense of separation between the two, and you can do it physically, so you know, I'm one of the few people I know in the South that goes to the North regularly, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying that in any kind of a flex. It's, it's an embarrassing thing to say. Um, the comedians on the scene, like Mario Rosenstock would be a good friend of mine. Uh, I think he's amazing. And he was telling me that I think he went to Belfast for the first time a couple of years ago, and that would be typical. The man's been touring for 20 years. And he was wondering would people kind of know his stuff or whatever and like the gig was sold out i think he did, he either did Belf he either did ulster hall or somewhere massive anyway and everyone knew his stuff everyone had been following his stuff and it's just typical of that sense of that kind of like spiritual emotional practical disconnect i have uh be it in my work in my social life and you know making friends up here and stuff that disconnect has never really been there for me and if the disconnect isn't there it makes no sense that they're two different states and um, also the history of of Irish republicanism I mean if you're an Irish republican and you're an anti-imperialist it would feel that it's the fitting thing for the destiny of the country would be to, to be reunited and I would definitely make no apologies for that it can sometimes be a slightly controversial thing to say or a slightly uncomfortable thing to say down south and what I'm trying to do a little bit with my work is to get to the root of why anyone should be made to feel that that's uncomfortable. And I think, you know, something that we've spoken about a bit off, a bit off camera, young people are amazing because young people are challenging that southern perspective all the time that it's two separate states and two separate mentalities. Um, so, yeah, so they're, they're just some of the reasons why, I suppose, as an Irish Republican, shocker, I would want to see United Ireland. <laughs> You're still tuned into The Conversation, your weekly alternative probe of political events and current affairs around Ireland. 
I'm joined by our special guest, comedian and author, Tag Hickey. Moving on to, to events in Gaza that we've been all horrified by this last few months. You've been a very strong advocate for uh, Palestinian self-determination. Has that been? And we spoke earlier, you said you'd met many new friends, many new uh, friends in the Middle East and stuff like that. Tell us a bit about that. I think, I think with Palestine, and it's a little bit like with United Ireland as well, it comes back to something we touched on at the start of like, in my drinking, I was inauthentic. Um, you have to be inauthentic to, to kind of survive. You have to lie, um, you have to cheat, you have to let people down in order to keep doing it. And when I got sober, one thing I was very clear about for myself was to, to actually protect myself, to stop myself from falling into possibility of drinking again and taking drugs again, which I know will ultimately lead. If I relapse, I've no doubt that I'll die and I don't want to die. So it's, it's just, it's very basic with me. I have to be authentic. So, so if I have personal views about the conflict and if I have personal views about my perspective on wanting a United Ireland, needless to say, a United Ireland that would be inclusive of everyone, not a narrow nationalism, I have no interest in that. If I have those views, I need to reflect those views in my work in order to be authentic. That's the way I would look at it, you know, and I hope that doesn't sound too kind of, I don't know, lavish or, or pretentious or whatnot, but that's the way I do think. So, so for instance, if I would lose some work opportunities down south for being authentic in my views, that would be a, f that's absolutely fine collateral damage. I need to be authentic. So in the case of Palestine, um, I have always felt that it's, it's actually one of the most, bizarrely, it's one of the most easy conflicts to understand, which is an indirect uh, opposition to the key Israeli claim that it's too complex for you and I to ever understand. Um, it's just a case, it's a land grab, it's settler colonialism. And I think if, if I'm going to be authentic about Ireland, uh, I need to also be authentic about Palestine and not worry too much about the backlash that you will get. Also, I have friends that are doing comedy in the States and Canada and places like that. They have backlash, like they have serious, I mean, you know, they have serious repercussions to worry about. In Ireland, it's less so. So I feel like, you know, many Arab friends have sent me messages. I mean, if you saw my messages on Instagram, like you'd be, it's, it's hard not to be crying at times because there's people saying, you know, it's refreshing to hear someone from the West just highlight what's going on here. Like, so it's basically like Ireland on a kind of a global level for me. It's like, you know, people hating you because they don't want to have the conversation and then people loving you because they see it's unusual for a white face to be fronting something that's talking about the decades of oppression, murder, mayhem, second class citizenship, you name it, apartheid that they're living under. So again, if you're going to be authentic, you accept that you're going to get some, some people, you know, I had a Zionist witch saying that she was putting a curse on me and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then I had loads of Muslim friends saying that they'd undone the, undone the curse. So that was a bit of crack, like, you know, but, uh, as regards work and stuff, I made a kind of a pact with myself a long time ago that I was going to be real to me anyway. I'm not saying it's the reality, it's my reality, it's my belief system. And if that means that I don't get work with the BBC or, or RT, then so be it. I think you're being too kind to yourself when you say, you know, you don't get it hard here as an artist when you stray off the conventions. I mean, like we as a, as a country steeped in censorship, 
I think still if you stray off those conventions that you do get it hard and you see that particularly from establishment journalists, um, establishment politicians and I think you've been you've been the receiving end of that also. Yeah, I suppose with journalists, they'll have jobs. Like, I don't, like, because I'm working for myself, I'm lucky. You know what I mean? Like, they'll, they'll attempt to, you know, so there's there's people online who've tried to get my gigs cancelled and, and whatnot. Um, Welcome to the club. Huh? <laughs> Welcome to the club. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I suppose that's, you know, to be honest with you, that can be tough at times because, you know, when that campaign was going online by this, I say campaign as being kind to the guy, like it, it seemed to just be one guy. But um, like, I also have a new baby, you know, and I have a partner and I have kids, like I've got two kids. So like, it's easy for me to be like, you know, it's like the song, you know, my love ain't got no money, but he's got a strong beliefs. It's grand for me to say that, but I need to be able to provide for my family as well. So it can be scary at times to think that, oh, okay, what happens here if I actually get completely canceled? But, um, I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm just a bit of a dreamer that way, but I just kind of think if you just plow on, and also I feel like with the stuff I'm doing, I'm not being nasty either really, you know what I mean? I'm not kind of like, I'm not doing a Dave Chappelle on it, and I'm on my third special that's basically targeting the trans community. Like, you know, I think they've probably been targeted enough, Dave, without your third special. Don't get me wrong, Dave is, a, is Dave. Dave Chappelle is a comedy god to people like me. You know, his early stuff is, the, the Chappelle show is some of the best satire I've ever seen in my life. And that's what makes it so sad that he went from punching up so elegantly to now just lazily punching down. Um, but I feel myself and I'm always checking in with people that I respect to see am I doing the right job with it. You know, before I write a sketch about Palestine, for instance, I've got about two or three Palestinian friends that I run it by just to make sure that the yeah. detail is there and stuff because I don't want to become lazy or, or assume that a that they want this this white lad from Cork to speak for them, like you know, even at the start of October when October seventh happened, and then the the absolutely insane response that we've seen since. Some people said, "Oh, you should do a sketch on this, or you should do a sketch on that." I asked Palestinians because I was like, "This mightn't be the moment for comedy." You know, I don't want to come in on something like it's hard to even think of what, and you'll be able to tell me better what the Irish parallel for, for this is. You know, what Palestinians are going through right now. I mean, it feels like it's it's Nakba point one or whatever, like, you know, so was comedy even an appropriate thing to do? And time and time again, they come back and they, that's, I think, why Irish and Palestinians get on so well. They've got this jet black sense of humour. My Palestinian friends in Cork were like, man, we need you, like, get in there, get in there. Like, and, and also, a good buddy of mine in Cork was kind of saying, you'll never have an opportunity like this again because the other side is making such a show of itself with this so-called propaganda that you've got to get in there, like, or it's a missed opportunity <laughs> if you don't, you know, so, yeah. So tell us what's happening this year. What are we going to see next from Tag Hacker? Well, I've been lucky enough to build up um, a nice little following from the Arab world. Like on Instagram, I, I have just, if you're interested, I, I have much more followers in Turkey uh, and Jordan than I would in Ireland. Unreal. Way more, like, yeah. Um, doesn't surprise me, <laughs> surprise me at all, by the way. But, but uh, so I'd like, I mean, in an ideal world, if I was going to do a tour again, I'd love to tour over there. I'd love to tour in, in places where uh, it, it's, it's news to me that, the, that uh, someone from the West having a kind of an anti-imperialist perspective and somebody shining a light on the hypocrisy, hypocrisy and atrocities of the American empire, that that would be an, a, a refreshing thing to see from their perspective. But it is. So... 
I'd like to eventually go over there and, and tour there. And also, for a while now, I've been trying to turn a sketch I did a couple of years ago that caused a lot of controversy. You may have seen it about a loyalist in a house share in Cork with the, you know, England, Scotland, Ireland and all mm -hmm. that. I've been trying to turn that with another writer in Ireland, uh, Michael West is his name, brilliant writer, playwright, into a full kind of TV show stroke film kind of effort. So, but it would go above, I mean, they're just standing for the actual, you know, the, there's no depth to any of those characters. Like it's just, you know, Scotland is just a crazy wig and a kind of a Scotland jersey. Um, but I've built them up, we've built them up into full dimensional characters. I hope it could be a TV show uh, and I'm talking to to people of significance who are interested in it, shall we say. So I would love to see um, some sort of Brexit, but it's a house share in Cork, uh, develop into a TV show or a film. Tag, looking forward to that. And it's always good to see you in Belfast. I'd say be safe to consider your second home now. Oh be? man, well definitely West Belfast anyway. Well listen, thank <laughs> you for coming. Always good to see you. Pleasure, brother. Okay. And that does it for another week. We'd love for you to join the conversation by sharing the link to today's programme to help us grow our audience across all our social media platforms. I'd like to thank our special guest, Tag Hickey. In the meantime, the conversation will be back next week with more investigations and analysis. I'm Sean Murray. Bye for now.